I'm going to start off by telling you about something that happened a couple of Christmases ago. Um, my family and I, we had just gotten the game Settlers of Catan. Anyone here played Settlers of Catan? Okay, I see a few hands, a few head nods, all right. If you're not familiar with the game, what you're doing is you're settling the island of Catan. And so you're trying to like get, you know, build roads, have villages, you're trying to build cities. But to do this, you have to acquire different materials. Well, to get those materials, you have to have the dice rolled. And wherever you have villages, you then get to harvest those materials. Well, we were playing, it was around Christmas time. Leanne's family was up in Waverly visiting us for the holidays. And they uh, also loved Catan, so they also brought their own game. So we had one game going on in the dining area, another game going on in the living room. All right, So we had two games going simultaneously, and I think I was doing the worst of anyone in either game. Like, no matter what was rolled, I would get nothing. Like, everyone else around me is building. I mean, Connie was sitting right next to me, and she just was, like, amassing tremendous wealth. And as this went on and on and on, I'm getting more and more frustrated. And I start to throw, and this is really embarrassing, I start to throw basically a little hissy fit. Like, I start almost crying. My voice gets a little high-pitched. I just wanted to take my cards and throw them on the table. And, I mean, everyone kind of looked at me like, Really? Like, Aaron, you're, you're going to do this? Like, it's almost like they expected me to fall to the ground, start pounding on the c- carpet, you know, saying, this isn't fair, this isn't fair. And they're just looking at me like, come on, it's just a game. But as soon as I started suffering, I wanted to quit. And what's even more embarrassing is I came back and won. And it just, it was really, really bad. <laughs> but isn't that how it goes? That when you start to suffer, you want to quit. Whether it's playing a game and it's not going your way and you're just like throwing your hands up, uh, you know, or if you're playing tennis, you're throwing your racket and you're like, that's it, I'm done. Or, or if you're like me, you're not handy. You start in on some project at home and it's not going very well. And finally, you're just like, oh, I'm done. I quit. Or, or maybe more seriously, when you're at your workplace, at your job, and it's not going well, you just want to walk into your boss and say, I'm done. I'm through. Or if you've ever been in a dating relationship or your marriage isn't going well, you just find yourself saying, that's it. It's over. We start to suffer and we find ourselves wanting to quit. Just this week, I happened to be emailing with a friend of mine from college. Uh, he and his wife, uh, kids, are missionaries over in, uh, overseas. And they're back in the United States right now uh, doing some additional fundraising. And so they're having to travel around. And so he'd emailed out, because he's on our, our prayer list, so I'd emailed out some prayer requests for people to be praying for Riverwood, and he emailed back. So I just thought, I wonder how he's doing. So I, I just emailed and said, how's it going? How's fundraising going? Are you guys excited? Are things going well? Or are you kind of worn out traveling all over? And here's, here's what he wrote me. Truth be told, I'm exhausted and discouraged and just plain weary. It's an odd situation. Did we feel called into this ministry? Absolutely. Has it been a blessing to us, our family, and those we are ministering to? Without question. But if I ever felt the freedom to choose what I wanted to do in life, I'd be doing different things. I'd be writing and editing full time because that's what I love to do. That's what makes me happiest. I I used to get time in my few moments of free time overseas to write. So now I'm missing that right now. Add to that the sometimes painful process of fundraising, where we drive around the country and see long-lost friends and ask for their support, and many will say yes, only to forget all about us when we drive away. No amount of follow-ups or soft nudges seem to make a difference. The letters I've written and the seeds we've planted appear to be languishing on hard-hearted ground. 
So yeah, today, today I'm depressed, and I'd rather climb back in bed. Today, I'd rather quit and pursue a job where I can feel a modicum of success and joy in what I do. Anyone here relate? Yeah. Life is full of suffering. And when we face that suffering, whether it's in ministry and fundraising, or it's in our job, or it's in a relationship, or it's in Iowa winters, or it's in Settlers of Catan, we find ourselves wanting to just throw our cards down and say, I'm done. I quit. Maybe some of you walk in here feeling that way. Maybe there's some area of your life right now where you just feel like, I can't take it anymore. I'm hoping that today will be a spark of encouragement. That that as the, the depression seems to be settling in, that somehow today's message would be like a light. And it would invigorate you and encourage you. Because today you're going to discover that through suffering, something beautiful takes place. So today we're going to learn some things about suffering, but we're also going to learn what to do in the midst of suffering. And we will discover that if we will just endure, if we will stick through it, something amazing will happen. So Father, I pray that you would speak to us right now through uh, Peter's words and through mine. And that you know the names, the stories of every single person that's walked in this room. You know exactly what's going on. And I just pray right now for anyone that is in a struggle or maybe is getting ready to enter into a struggle. That today's message is exactly what they need to to have the fuel to keep going. To keep the climb uphill no matter how hard and difficult it gets. Because you are at work. And so Father, I pray that you would work right now. That you would open up our minds and ears to what you want to say. That it isn't about what I've prepared. It's about what you have been saying throughout the centuries. And you even have for us today on this October 30th of 2016. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you have not opened up your Bible yet uh, to 1 Peter, go ahead. Uh, Just a reminder, though, we've got to look back at what's the setting. If you were with us when we launched this uh, series in 1 Peter, you might remember that Peter's writing to a group of Jesus followers who were living in an area called Asia Minor. Uh, This region was underneath the Roman Empire. And as Peter was writing this letter, Nero was the emperor of Rome. And we've already looked a couple of times during the series of how Nero hated Christians. I mean, he would kill them just for sport. And the persecution that was in Rome had now spread throughout the Roman Empire. And so Peter heard about some of what the Jesus followers were going through in Asia Minor. So he's writing them in this letter because as they're suffering for their faith, his fear is that they might begin to just quit, that they just throw their cards down and say, I'm done. It's not worth it. So he's trying to write to encourage them. And today we get right to the heart of the matter. And, and he talks about suffering in both chapter 3 and chapter 4. So what we're going to do today is rather than kind of do chapter 3 today and in a couple weeks get to the stuff in chapter 4, we're going to go over and we're going to dip into chapter 4 and bring some of that in because it's going to enhance our learning of what suffering is and how to respond to it. So let me read. We're going to start in chapter 3, verse 13. We'll go through 17 and then we'll skip over to chapter 4. So those of you on digital Bibles, get ready to make your thumbs uh, move quick. All right, 1 Peter 3.13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, 
so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. All right, now skip over to chapter 4, verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. All right, I, I see uh, some things in here that Peter highlights about what suffering is. And we're going we're gonna to look at three of them. There might be more, but we're going to look at, at three. The, the first thing I think Peter wants us to know about suffering is that we should not be surprised. Not be surprised. Um, any of you have Netflix? Okay, a few of you do. Okay, I unfortunately do not have the pleasure of having Netflix. So therefore, I've never seen their, their hit show, Stranger Things. It's this hit show right now. Uh, people are loving it. It's into season two. And all I know is that in episode one, some kid goes missing. And as they're investigating his disappearance, all these stranger things start happening. So it, it teeters on, like, I love mysteries, so it's a bit of a mystery. But I guess it, there's, like, just a little bit of, like, horror genre in there or something. Again, I've never seen it, but it's a runaway hit, apparently. I think sometimes when suffering comes into our life, we act like it's stranger things. We sit there and wonder, what is going on? How did this happen? Why is this happening? But notice what Peter says there in chapter 4, verse 12. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Life is full of suffering. Suffering is going to come your way, whether you want it to or not. The thing is, though, often when it shows up, we kind of are taken aback. We just wonder, how did this happen? Why is this happening? And I think the reason that Peter says, don't be surprised, is because he's in another way to say it, is he's saying... Don't panic. Because when you begin to panic, you can't think straight. It, your, your emotions start getting all welled up, and you don't respond well. But if you are able to not be surprised, to not panic, you now have a calmness to begin to think through what is happening. So don't be surprised. The reason, though, I think he says to not be surprised is because of the second thing he wants us to get. And that is God is in control. God is in control. And just look down there at verse 19. He writes, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Did you hear it? He says, let those who suffer according to God's will. In other words, the suffering you're going through is being allowed by God. That is an uncomfortable truth. I, I know people who, when they hear something like that, think, then why in the world would I want to follow such a God? The, the idea is we, we think that, man, if he's allowing this in my life or even creating it, 
he must not love me, or he must be really harsh, or maybe he's like some masochist who finds a lot of joy and pleasure in watching me be tortured. No. Notice what, how he describes God, the, the very next phrase, to those who entrust their souls to a faithful creator. God is faithful, and he is faithfully at work. We've talked about it multiple times here at Riverwood, and we will continue to talk about it. That when Adam and Eve ate of the forbidden fruit, sin entered the scene. And not only did sin infect all of creation, it infected humans themselves. And when God created mankind, he created the image of himself in them. But that image became distorted. It became marred. It became destroyed because of sin. It's still there, but it's just a, an absolute blurry mess compared to how it should be. And so what God is doing, his, his mission is to restore the image of Jesus within you so that you will then go and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And so what he's doing is he's using the suffering like a chisel where he's going in and he's hammering and carving away anything that does not look like Jesus, that does not look like the image of God within you so that he can begin to bring that radiance back out of you. In fact, Paul talks about this over in, you, you don't have to turn to this unless you want to, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul was writing to the, the church, and in verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. And if you ever heard, or maybe someone said to you, God will not give you more than you can handle. Yeah, in fact, someone just told me that on the phone uh, Friday. And I was like, well, um, actually, if you look at 2 Corinthians 1, it sure sounds to me like God gave Paul more than he could handle because he was utterly burdened beyond his own strength. He despaired even of life itself. And that sure sounds like someone who's feeling overwhelmed, someone who's feeling like they just want to give up and quit. Why would God do that to Paul and his friends? Because of what he says next, the second half of verse 9. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. In other words, God is allowing the suffering into your life to do a work in you. He is faithfully molding and shaping you into the image of Jesus to restore who you were meant to be. And that means he'll even allow this suffering in, even to the point that you feel overwhelmed so that you have to fully rely on God. Because when you're fully relying on him, now your faith is strong and you are being more like Christ. Because Jesus went through the suffering of the cross. And to do so, he kept his eyes on the Father. And when you are utterly burdened beyond even life itself, it forces you to your knees. You have to rely on God. And now you're becoming like Christ. God is faithful. He's in control. So that's why you don't have to freak out when the suffering comes. Because you know, God's got this. All suffering is temporary. All of it. E even if it means it's going to last the rest of your life. Most suffering doesn't. Most happens for a time. But even if it does last the rest of your life, when your life is done, if your life and identity is in Jesus, you have an eternity with heaven. I mean, in heaven with your father. And there's no suffering anymore. All suffering is temporary. That is why you can just sit there and rely on God, rest in him, and know he's in control. 
The third thing, though, that I think we learn in this is to not go and create suffering. If you look there at verse 14, back in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 4.15, Peter wrote this, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Now, I have never committed murder. Uh, I know, big shock and surprise there. And uh, by the way, I don't plan to ever commit murder. It's not on my bucket list. Um, But I would imagine if I had committed murder, and I get arrested for it, and I get put on trial, it probably would not be much fun to sit in a courtroom and hear all these accusations being made against you, to have a jury of your peers pronounce you guilty, to hear the judge say you have a life sentence in prison, and then to sit the rest of my life in a jail cell. And I'm sure that any murderer who has had that happen is not sitting there grinning ear to ear going, man, this is so much fun. No, they're probably miserable. And they might even use the word suffering. But the suffering that they're facing is the suffering that they created. They did it to themselves. Now, I I do not fear that any of you are going to go out and feel like, okay, so God uses suffering, so therefore I should create some suffering. So, all right, I guess I got to go and kill someone. I'm not worried about any of you doing that. But I've done enough counseling. I've been a pastor long enough to see people make just some grave mistakes that bring suffering into their life. I've seen people just continue to return back to their addiction and how it wreaks havoc on their body, how it wreaks havoc on their brain, how it wreaks havoc on their relationships, how it wreaks havoc on their jobs. And yet they just keep doing it and it creates suffering. But that's not just the natural suffering that comes. God is not telling you to go sin so that you can suffer. He wants you to follow him and to trust him because life has enough suffering in and of itself. So you don't have to go and create it. And, and so if you're single, you do not have to jump into a bad relationship to create some suffering. Now, life has enough. Don't do it. You keep your eyes on Jesus because the suffering's going to come, so don't be surprised. God's in control in that suffering. So you do not need to go and create it. Instead, when suffering comes, I think there are three things that we need to do. And I see these back in chapter 3. In fact, I see them all within verse 15. So look at uh, 1 Peter 3.15 with me. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I used to not like this verse. In fact, I will, I'll just say it. I used to be scared of this verse, not because it put on a Halloween costume and jumped out and said boo. Uh, I used to be scared of it because of how I often heard it used. I remember hearing uh, a, a pastor, a really, really smart dude, talk about apologetics. If you don't know what apologetics are, it, it's not what I thought it was, a, a saying you're sorry for your faith. It's a, it's a defense of your faith. And so this guy is talking about apologetics. And to talk about apologetics, he used this verse, that you should always be ready to give a defense for your faith. And he proceeded to give overwhelming evidence of the the validity of Christianity, of why it's not only a viable uh, belief system, but that it's true. And and he dipped into archaeology. He looked at ancient historical quotes. He even, you know, worked things out from a philosophical viewpoint and showed how it's a, a, a really solid worldview. But the more he talked and the bigger the case he built, the more overwhelmed I got. Because I feared that I would then leave from that conference 
and, and enter into a conversation with some atheist or someone from a different religion. And as they would ask me questions, I would not be able to recall all the things that he taught. And so therefore, because I couldn't say it all, I would leave holes within Christianity. And therefore, I would have failed God and failed Christianity. So therefore, I was scared. But that's not what Peter's talking about. I, I, by the way, I don't think it's wrong to like read books about apologetics. I've got some. I've enjoyed them. I, I continue to go back to them. I, I don't think it's wrong to, to be really knowledgeable, knowledgeable about archaeology or philosophy. But that's not Peter's point. He's not saying when you get into a debate with someone from another religion, here's what you have to do. Because the context all around this is about suffering. This is about what to do when suffering comes upon you. Because his readers were being spiritually persecuted. They were suffering greatly. So he's not telling them how to, you know, begin to roll out philosophical arguments. Instead, he tells them to do three things. The first thing is to honor Christ in your heart. Two weeks, uh, three weeks ago, sorry. You might remember, if you've been sticking with us in the series, that... uh, that Peter was writing to them saying, you need to honor authorities. Whether it was the emperor or the governor or personal authorities, you need to honor these authorities. And that conversation about honor began to move into marriage. So he said, you know, within marriage, spouses need to show honor to one another. Well, then last week we saw him extend that even further. That you need to honor all relationships, especially within the church. Well, he, he can't help himself. He keeps going on this idea of honor, but he gets it now to its core. That the honor that you can show to authorities, the honor you show to your spouse, the honor that you can show to your church family or to, to your work friends or, or neighbors is because of your honor in Christ. You notice he says there the very first thing, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. When this honor is sitting in your heart, it's at the core of your being. It's now who you are and what you are about. You are now being Jesus-centered. And as you're being Jesus-centered, that begins to fuel everything else about you. When you're self-centered, you're going to end up being worried. So when the suffering comes, that's when you act like the two-year-old who wants to throw his cards down. But when you're Jesus-centered, you have a very different response. You actually have honor that begins with an honor to Christ. And as we're going to see here in a moment, begins to come out as honor towards others. In fact, Peter gets so bold as to tell us that when suffering comes to not only honor Christ, but to even rejoice. In fact, look back there at uh, chapter 14, sorry, chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. Peter actually has the gall to say this. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Can you believe it? He's saying when the suffering comes... Not to just honor Christ in your heart, but actually rejoice in it. Jesus had a brother named James. And James ended up taking a a prominent leadership position within the early church. And so much like Peter, he wrote a letter. Peter wrote his to a group up in uh, Asia Minor. James wrote his to a group out in what was known as the Dysporia, the dispersion. And it was all these Jews that were dispersed out, mostly east, away from uh, Jerusalem. And he said something very similar to them in chapter 1. I'm sorry, I should have put this up on the the screen. I just thought of this passage. Chapter 1, he says, Count it joy when you encounter trials of many kinds. Why? Because as you persevere through the suffering, as you persevere through the trial, as you endure, something happens. You will become perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
it means God is faithfully at work within you. If you dip back into the Old Testament, there's this guy named Job. Job was super wealthy. I mean, he he was happily married, tons of kids, tons of people that worked for him, had tons of livestock. I mean, the dude was on top of the mountain in the eyes of the world. And Satan walks in to God's presence and says, the only reason Job likes you is because you've given him so much stuff. You took it all away, he'd curse you. And God, the God who knows hearts, says, no, he wouldn't. I know Job. He's faithful. He loves me. Satan's like, Well, then take it all away. God says, all right, go ahead, do it. So Satan does. Kills off his family, kills off his employees, takes everything away from him. And all of a sudden, Job's friends, and I put that in quote, show up, and they start talking to him. And they're saying, dude, what'd you do? I mean, like, you've lost everything. God must hate you. He must be mad at you to allow this suffering. And you must have sinned. Confess it now. And Job's like, "I, I didn't do anything. And then God shows up at the end of the book and basically says, I am God. I'm in control. Nothing can happen outside of my hand. And sure enough, God restores it all back to Job at the end. But even if he didn't, the point was, even if you have everything in this world, but lose your own soul, you've got nothing. But if you have God, if you have Christ, even if you lose everything in this world, you've got everything. Because now you have something that truly matters, that truly lasts. Because everything on this earth, it's going to end. It's going to go away. You can't take it with you. And even if you could, even if you could take the best, even if you could take a suitcase full of gold, you'd get to heaven, they'd open it up and look at it and go, you brought pavement? I mean, it's, the stuff of this earth, world is worthless compared to what's ahead. And so you can continue to seek Christ, to honor him, to make your life all about him, even in the midst of suffering. Because God is in control. As you're being Jesus-centered, as you're honoring Christ in your heart, then something happens, and you begin to point to Christ through your words. You point to Christ through your words. And I see that there in the next phrase. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Because when suffering comes upon you, Most people, they whine, they complain, they act like me playing Settlers of Catan. But if you respond differently, if you start revealing a strength, if there seems to be this peace, like if your behavior and approach is very different than how most people would respond, it's going to make people curious. And so they're going to ask you, how in the world are you going through the suffering like this? Your only explanation is, It's going to be Jesus. You're not going to help but point at him through your words. Because as you going through this, you're like, the only thing that's helping me, the only thing that's carrying me through this is my faith in Christ. That's your defense. You're pointing at Jesus. That's what he means. So it isn't about archaeology, as great as that is. It isn't about a philosophical argument. It isn't about dipping into history. Those things are good and necessary. But what Peter's trying to say to you, is get Jesus-centered, honor him in your heart, so that when someone asks, you're pointing through your words. And then, as you point through your words, you begin to also then glorify God through your approach. Glorify God in your approach. And that's the last phrase there in uh, verse 15. He says that as as people ask you and you give this reason for the hope that's in you, he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness 
and respect. It's sometimes when you're trying to make a point, you, you'll talk more forcefully. Uh, you, you know, I, as a pastor, I'm fully aware of this. You know, it happens on Sunday mornings all the time. It happens with my children in my home. You know, sometimes we think that the more forcefully we say something, the more believable it therefore is. But the strength with which you say something doesn't make it more true. It's true whether you say it in a whisper or at the top of your lungs. And so when you are talking to someone and someone begins to go, what? Jesus? That's why? And they begin to discount your faith? You don't have to get defensive. You don't have to start raising your voice. You don't have to start pounding the pulpit. You can just respond with gentleness and respect. Because you know that God is in control. And it doesn't matter what they say. So you can just respond gently, respectfully, with honor. Because ultimately, the honor that you give to them comes from the honor that's in your heart for Christ. That's what you do when you suffer. When suffering rears its ugly head, you begin to just honor Christ in your heart. You seek him. You trust him. You point to Christ through your words that if someone actually asks you or talks to you, you're pointing at him. And then you glorify him through your approach. You just go about responding with gentleness and respect. Back in about 2008, uh, a couple in our church began to go through some really, really intense sufferings. Their names were Aaron and Shannon. Shannon was diagnosed with cancer, and it, it was an aggressive cancer. I forget exactly where it started, but it, it just began to spread all over. And, and she went after every treatment, did everything possible. And in fact, they even flew from America over to Europe because there was some experimental treatment they'd heard about, and it wasn't in America yet. And even if it was, insurance wouldn't have covered it. And they were at the end. And so they're like, we're going to try. And so they flew over, I think it was Switzerland, and, and even attempted it. But I remember talking with Shannon shortly after her diagnosis. And she said that she calls her mom as she was leaving. Well, first she called Aaron. Um, oh, no, I think Aaron was with her. She calls her mom. And her mom just begins to cry. And mom just says, Shannon, I'm so worried about you. And Shannon just paused and said, Mom, I'm not worried. Even if this cancer kills me, I know where I'm going. Mom, to tell you the truth, I'm more concerned about you. Because you can't give me a clear explanation of faith. I don't know that you really know Jesus. And so my concern is that if you were to die, that you wouldn't be joining me in heaven with Christ. And so there, Shannon gets together with her mom and begins to share her faith and share the gospel. And mom places her faith in Jesus. And now as mom's eyes are open spiritually, she begins to get excited. And so she's like, would you hold a Bible study with my friends? And so here's Shannon, full of cancer, sitting down with all of these 60 and 70-year-old women and doing a Bible study with them. And two of those women placed their faith in Christ. And, and then her husband, Aaron, as he's going through this, I mean, I had some really tough talks with Aaron. It was hard. It sucked. And yet he would go to work and everyone knew what was going on with Shannon. And yet they watched him and the way he responded to this. And they began to ask questions. And so all he would do is point to Christ through his words. And eventually Chad, one of his co-workers, places his faith. Chad was so riddled up with drugs and alcohol. His life was a mess and nothing was working. And he sees Aaron and this peace that's in him. Sees him honoring Christ. So he asks the questions. He hears about Christ. Chad gives his life to Christ. And Chad is now a deacon in his church. He's now a leader in his church. And not only that, 
Aaron and Shannon's two girls had totally walked away from the faith. And when this happened, they got madder at God. One daughter was living with her boyfriend, pregnant, totally abandoned from mom and dad. The other one just going after substance abuse, just mad at God. But they watched the way their mom and dad fought through this and the way they sought after Jesus. And eventually they both found their ways back to Christ. And not only that, but the one girl's boyfriend also places his faith in Jesus, marries their daughter, and they actually got to be there, both Aaron and Shannon, that's where the picture's from, was the night that their son-in-law, and as well as Chad, were both baptized. Now, I wish I could tell you that this was a Job-type story, where God restored Shannon's health back to her. He did. It's just he allowed her physical body to end, and Shannon's now in heaven with her Savior. And yet, Shannon and Aaron sought to honor Christ through their life. He he was in their hearts, and that caused them to point to Christ through their words. And they glorified Christ through their approach. They did not go about with judgment, looking down upon anyone. They weren't angry. And this gentle and respectful approach caused person after person after person to find Jesus and begin to follow him. And Shannon's going to have quite a party in heaven because there are going to be people up there who found Christ because of the way Shannon used her cancer. That is why I want to encourage you. When suffering comes, don't act like a little two-year-old and throw yourself down on the ground and cry, it's not fair. You're right, it's not. But yet God is in control. So don't be surprised when it comes. Instead, let the suffering drive you to Jesus. Honor him in your heart. Point to him through your words and glorify him through your approach. Because not only will that give you the strength to make it through the suffering, because God is at work. He's faithfully crafting you to be more like Christ. He's at work within you because when he does a great work in you, he's going to do a great work through you. So as you submit to it, as you seek Christ, not only will you be stronger, you just might see some other people's lives changed. Because he might have allowed the suffering in your life to help someone else find and follow Jesus. And you will have changed the world for someone else, even as you went through the sucky thing yourself. That is why I want to encourage you. Suffer well. Don't quit. Seek Jesus. Let him work in you. And you will see something beautiful happen, both inside of you as you become more like Jesus and around you as you see others asking questions, wondering how in the world can you do this? And you will have to say, it's all because of him. So Father, I just pray that you would help us to do this. It's one thing to say it, but it's another thing to go and live it. It's hard. But Jesus, if you could suffer through the pain of the cross for us out of your love, then would you empower us through your Holy Spirit to suffer through these things out of our love for you, to trust that you are at work. God, you want to develop a deep faith within us. You want us to fully rely upon you because this is what you've made us for. You placed your image in us, but it's been marred by sin. And yet you want to restore us back to that image of Jesus. So God, that's why we say, take your chisel, carve away anything in us that does not look like Jesus And would you let the radiance of Christ come through us? Because what this world needs is people who will go and love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. So we surrender ourselves. We lay ourselves down in front of you. 
We put ourselves on your operating table because we trust your hand. So, Father, do the surgery in us. And if it means you're using the, the knife of suffering or you're using something else, we just open ourselves to you and say, do this for your glory and for ultimately our joy. But God, it's not fun in the moment. Help us to have an eternal perspective, to see that we are even getting to suffer with Christ, that if any of us are ever persecuted for our faith, that we were counted worthy of such a thing. But God, I pray right now for anyone who's going through sickness, whether it's short-term or long-term, a physical pain, Maybe someone here is, is going through a, a job situation or maybe there's a relationship issue. And I pray, Father, that right now for anyone who feels like they just want to throw their hands up and say, I quit, that you right now would speak to them and you would tell them to hang on, but not to just hang on to life, to not just keep going another day, but to hang on to you, to go to your gospel and see that Jesus went through the most difficult pain that is ever possible for us. And that he would be our example. He would be our motivation. He would be what we cling to. And you, God, would carry us through this pain and this suffering. Father, I pray right now for anyone that's here that does not know you. They're searching. They're seeking. They've got questions. And right now you are saying, I love you. Come to me. Turn to me. God, I pray that you would just put that prayer in their heart, that they would confess their sin. They would admit that they've been self-centered, but now they want to be Jesus-centered. And they will admit that, Jesus, you died on the cross for their sins, and now their sins are forgiven. And they can step into this new life, not a life that's devoid of problems, but a life where you are in control of the problems. And that they would surrender themselves to you and allowing you to carry them through and even to remold and reshape them so that they aren't living for self, but they're now living for something greater. They're living for you and to benefit others. God, I want to see this church be the type of church that doesn't just gather on Sundays, sings a few songs, and calls it good, but instead a church that goes and it is the church that we would live out our faith day after day after day. And even in the midst of suffering, we would still cling to you because God, you are good and you're in control. So we cling to you, Jesus. We cling to you in prayer. We cling to you through your word. We cling to you in worship because we need you. Empower us, Jesus, to suffer well, that we would do it for your glory. And we actually can have joy in the midst of it because it means that you are at work.